The Federal Reserve just announced it will start tapering its monthly bond purchases later this month. What's the worst that could happen? The potential for a sharp backup in rates that you know Fed isn't prepared for and the markets are, are definitely not prepared for um, seems very real to me. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Adam Taggart, founder of Wealthion, welcoming you back for another week of making sense of money and the markets so that you can make better informed decisions about building your wealth. Right now, we're living in a world of all-time high asset prices. Just look at stocks, housing, or cryptocurrencies, just to name a few. They've all rocketed higher in 2021. Wages are suddenly rising faster than they have in many years, too. Are these the new roaring 20s? Will we enjoy a prolonged period of prosperity from here? Or is the current party not sustainable? Skeptics worry that spiking inflation, fast slowing economic growth, accelerating wealth inequality, snarled supply chains, energy shortages, too much leverage, and too much financialization are putting the system at danger of another reckoning like the Great Recession. Who's likely to be proven right, the optimists or the skeptics? To delve deep with us into this is Stephanie Pomboy, founder of Macro Mavens, a preeminent economic research firm, and one of my most favorite people to interview. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here as always, Adam. Thanks for having me back. I'm looking forward to the conversation. We picked quite a day and time to uh, convene for this conversation. We did. We did. Uh, perhaps yeah. even by the end of it, we might know what uh, Jerome Powell says today, but we probably are going to finish right before he takes the podium. All right, Stephanie, well, look, let's start with the question I began with the last time I interviewed you. I just like to ask all my guests this at the beginning. What is your current assessment of today's global economy and financial markets? Oh, boy. Okay. Well, um, uh, way to start with uh the, the, the easy the, one, the depressing one right out of the gate, right? Uh, well, to the extent that I've been sort of chronicling this ever expanding wedge between asset prices and the fundamentals um, ever since, you know, you and I started talking, uh, my current outlook is only different from my previous outlook uh, to the extent it's even more dire <laughs> because I do expect at some point there's going to be a reckoning between those two, between perception and reality. And, and that won't be pretty. Of course, figuring out the timing of that is impossible, but um, I'd rather, you know, not try to be clever enough to figure out the exact moment and just stand back and, and let other people try to play that final uh, blow off phase, uh, which I keep thinking we've seen 37 times already, but it may just keep coming. Uh, so in, in some, my outlook uh, is that, you know, we have a very fragile financial backdrop uh, for the markets and that that will ultimately um, set up some real potential destruction for the global economy. Okay. Okay. So um, I was I pulled a quote from the last time we talked where you said, um, quote, uh, the mar you'd never seen a time when the markets were so far afield from the economic reality on the ground. Yeah. Um, we're about a year later from that interview where you had said that with me. Um, and of course, we're just even farther afielder uh, today. Right. So I, I was going to ask you, um, 
you know, do you think something fundamentals changed and we're just at a, a in a different new normal? Um, or do you do you see that we're just uh, we just now have more altitude for the the snapback that that must come? Um, it sounds like you think the latter. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what would have changed that would justify the valuations we're at. I mean, I guess the only thing that people could imagine, which I guess is the consensus, is that the fundamentals are going to suddenly ramp higher, high enough to justify the level to which asset prices have already climbed. But that's a Herculean feat. You know, if you just look at the very simplest metric of valuation, you look at that Buffett indicator of market cap to GDP, um, you know, today in history over the last, you know, in the post-war period, uh, the market cap has averaged just under 80% of GDP. So today GDP is a little bit more than 20 trillion. So you're talking about a, a fair market cap of 16 trillion. Last I checked, the Wilshire was trading around 48 trillion. So, I mean, it's insane. We've, let's say we have the 30 trillion excess value, you know, fluff in that market. Um, unwinding that would be absolutely devastating, obviously. Um, and that, that froth, that bubble is far bigger than it was at the bubble of all bubbles, the dot-com bubble in 2000. I just went back and looked at that and uh, the market cap, the excess valuation then today it's 30 trillion. Back then it was 8 trillion. And at the time, total GDP was 10 trillion. So you were talking about, you know, a hit, let's say of 80% of GDP. Today you're talking about a hit of 130% of GDP. I mean, there's just no, if we do go back to any kind of reasonable valuation, uh, it would be absolutely devastating. All right, yeah, and, and to your point, it sounds like the, the two main arguments for presuming that prices could have reached a new normal, that assumes that either the economy is going to be growing faster than it is today to support that. And in just a moment, I want to ask you about the economy because it's actually quickly decelerating. It is right. slowing. Um, or that, uh, you know, there's been so much stimulus pumped into the markets um, or into the system that's found its way into financial asset prices, um, where one could make the argument that, okay, if they just keep those stimulus pumps mm -hmm. running, they could keep uh, prices higher. Um, and maybe we'll talk about that too, but it's certainly looking like, um, you know, Powell, perhaps in just an hour or so, is gonna come out and say, you know, hey, we're serious about tapering because that's the game he's been talking. And Congress is having a harder and harder time getting, um, you know, additional fiscal stimulus passed now. It's, it's It doesn't have the political air cover or, or support to, get the, the, the many trillions it, it passed last year. So it, it seems unlikely, my point is, is that the stimulus spigots are gonna continue going forward right. the way that they have. So um, uh, that opens up a bunch of questions, but first let me just start with inflation, because that is something that's been new this year um, and we can largely tie it to that stimulus. Yeah. Uh, we can also tie it to some breakages in the global supply chains, et cetera. Um, but, but that has been a, a new factor this year. Does that change your outlook at all? In other words, does it uh, does it either make you more worried about a coming correction or 
Does it stave things off for a bit? How does inflation change the way you're looking at the macro picture? Well, I think to the extent it changes it, it makes it more dire and it probably brings the urgency uh, or the risk sooner um, and so for a couple of reasons. Um, number one is just from a very broad sort of nerdy macroeconomic analysis, think about pump all the stimulus in monetary and fiscal and the idea is to get the economy going um, but demand was so slack during that period that the money had nowhere else to go but into assets so all the excess liquidity let's say flowed into assets as prices go up consumers have to spend more just for their basic everyday necessities so the economy is sucking in more of that liquidity at the margin because inflation is trying to catch up to the high inflation numbers. That at the margin is sucking liquidity away from the markets. So the more and more inflation goes up in the economy, the more and more inflation goes down in financial assets. And I think of that as kind of a tug of war. If you keep stimulus the same, the two forces are gonna go back and forth, um, pulling and pushing depending on the, the demand and inflation pressures in the economy versus the markets. Um, so, sorry think, to interrupt, but can I, can I add a question to that, which is, do, do you also have the additional effect of um, on the financial markets? Not only is rising inflation sort of stealing capital from the financial markets, but it's also depressing profit margins yes. at these companies. Absolutely. So there's that, which is a rich topic that I love to go into because it's not one that you know, uh, judging by the markets, anyone really believes is an issue. Uh, you listen to these earnings calls in the third quarter and people feel like, oh, look, they're getting pricing power. They're passing on prices to the consumer. But if you just stand back and look at the CPI, the consumer price index versus the PPI, which is the input cost that all these businesses are facing, um, the PPI is running twice the rate of the CPI. So sure, plenty of companies are being able to pass on some of their price increases to the consumer, but there is a massive margin squeeze going on behind the scenes that people aren't really paying attention to. And I think companies have been able to disguise that so far. Um, they've you know, rung as many efficiencies as they can, and they've passed, raised prices a little bit, um, but they're not gonna be able to play this game forever, especially if, I know we'll get to this later, but especially if the stimulus bill that's currently be, being proposed goes through with that tax on buybacks. Admittedly, the, the tax proposal is just 1%, but you know the journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step. Make no mistake, once they get the door open to uh, raising a tax on buybacks, that will be their source of funding for every spending program they want in the future. And buybacks factor into this earnings thing because when you're able to buy back your shares, you can inflate your earnings per share earning metrics. And that's why I've always focused on the, the government accounting of profits, which is just a dollar profit level rather than the per share number. This all gets wonky. But the point I'm getting to is that if you looked at what's happening with corporate profits as reported by the government, you get a very different picture about how corporate America is doing today than you do listening to the companies reporting from uh, the S&P. Um, 
so we can get into that path more. But the third thing I would, you know, getting back to the question about um, this increase in inflation and how it factors into my outlook, um, the third factor beyond sucking money out of the markets into the economy and uh, depressing corporate profit margins, the third potential factor is pushing interest rates higher, which on a highly levered economy um, could be the death knell. So I think it's very interesting um, to watch how complacent the markets have been about the Fed's tapering, um, which they view as they buy the Fed's assurance that tapering isn't tightening. It's just a gradual removal of accommodation um, and that they're not going to raise rates until who knows, you know, if we'll get a window into that today, but it's sometime next year or even the year after. Um, but that's all just a sound of fury signifying nothing, because when one of the largest buyers of treasuries starts to gradually slow their purchases and issuance keeps going bananas, you know, this is basic supply and demand. The outlet is going to be higher interest rates. So they can say taper isn't tightening. Um, I, I think we'll see shortly that that is not true whatsoever. So there are three ways in which the inflation could really hit the economy by, you know, letting interest rates go up, no longer suppressed under the thumb of the Fed. Uh, anyway. Yeah, you know, well, well, great point. Um, and uh, well, so first question is, is uh, do you like how near term a threat do you think that is? Right. So, you know, a lot of a lot of people I've talked to or a number of people I've talked to have said, look, um, the Fed may be forced to tighten eventually if inflation keeps rising the way that it is. They absolutely do not want to tighten. Right. They might taper. Right. They're saying we're going to taper, not tighten, but they may actually be forced to tighten if inflation really continues to rage for longer than they they want it to. Um, but but what you're even saying is is they don't even the Fed doesn't necessarily have to tighten for interest rates to go up. Right. Um, so you know, kind of looking ahead, when do you sort of think interest rates could start to creep higher? Is that something you think could happen? You know, next couple of months, next year. It's yeah. not for years. What do you think? It's, you know, the tricky part is trying to figure out what is the safe haven demand for Treasury is going to be in whatever, you know, environment you're talking about. So um, right now, there is no fear. So it's all risk on. So there's really no safe haven bid for U.S. Treasuries by U.S. investors. Um, and for that reason, I think the taper could have the immediate effect of pushing interest rates higher just because who's buying 10-year treasuries at you know negative real interest rates right. um, when you can buy Tesla or all these other you know meme stocks. Right. So, and, and sorry to interrupt, but but deeply negative real rates. Yes, right, exactly. Um, so I think that uh, the the prospect of an increase in rates is much greater and far more immediate than people expect. I wrote a whole paper a couple of weeks ago where I went in and looked at who are the what's going on with the typical buyers of treasuries right now, um, because we did see a backup in 10 year yields from 130 to 160 that happened very quickly. And I thought, OK, well, maybe this could be a sign of things to come when the Fed really implements taper. 
Um, and when I went back and looked at what our big buyers were doing during that period that rates backed up 30 basis points, I came away even more terrified about the prospect for higher rates because it turned out that foreign central banks had sharply accelerated their purchases of treasuries, even as we saw the sell-off in rates. So too had US domestic banks, um, our commercial banks loaded up on treasuries and at the same time, they backed up anyway. So when you take two of the biggest buyers and they're rapidly increasing their purchases and yet rates still go up anyway, you get a sense as to how incredibly fragile our financial, our financing situation is. Um, and the idea that the Fed that, you know, is taking down, you know, roughly one trillion of three trillion annual issuance of treasuries can just somehow say, oh, we're going to reduce our purchases and don't worry, it'll be like watching paint dry. Um, it's just laughable to me, but you know, they, they didn't learn the lesson in 2017, 2018. So, uh, they're back, they're back at it again. Wow. Uh, that's, uh, that's really important uh, information, Stephanie, because I think, you know, that is not in a lot of people's radar yeah. right now, let me put it that way. Um, so if I'm hearing you correctly, you sort of feel like, Hey, in the near term, there, there's more potential for rates to start rising than most people realize, and certainly the market is giving credit for right now. Um, let me ask you this. If they if they rise high enough, do you then expect that to sort of trigger some sort of correction in the markets? <laughs> we might even tip into recession with a slowing economy at the same time. Um, then do you expect to see demand, you know, large demand for treasuries as a safe haven? So the they, they, point is, could, could they come up yes. and be forced down by the correction? And then if so, where do they go after that? Right, exactly. I mean, that's why I made the point about that you've got to figure out that safe haven demand part of it, because it seems to me like, given the numbers I, I laid out earlier about the overvaluation of the market, it wouldn't take much of an increase in interest rates to have a potentially really meaningful effect on the stock market. Um, and you would have this flight to safety that could, you know, maybe bond, maybe the 10 year backs up to 175 or 180 or you know pick a number somewhere just barely up toward two and that's enough to get the stock market down then you immediately find yourself back at one percent treasury yields because you're in the midst of this sort of deflation panic and everyone's rushing in there to buy um and they're probably anticipating that the fed's going to pause the taper and all of that stuff um i would note this is kind of just by way of um minutia, but the Treasury did just announce that it's going to scale back its issuance of coupons. Um, so it's reducing just in time for the Fed to taper its purchases of long dated Treasuries. The Treasury is going to issue less of that paper. So presumably that means they're going to shift their funding more to the front end of the curve. So that'll be a factor as well. But I, I think that um, in general, given, again, the fact that the, the Fed was taking down a third of issuance, uh, the potential for a sharp backup in rates that, you know, Fed isn't prepared for and the markets are, are definitely not prepared for um, seems very real to me. All right. And, and Stephanie, you're putting your finger on a big reason why we do these videos here at Wealthion. Um, you know, we, I talk a lot about with the experts we have on here that now is a particularly treacherous time for investors because things are so uncertain mm -hmm. and they have the ability to 
you know, to be, there has the ability to be a lot of cross currents that come into play here where things may change quite rapidly on the ground. So you, you, you really don't have the, it's sad, but we really don't have the luxury of picking a long-term strategy and just sailing through with that strategy. Right. We're, we're entering an environment, we're in an environment and entering an increasing one, but you really kind of have to be nimble because even if your long-term prediction is right, you can get wiped out multiple times along the way if you're not positioned where the wind is currently blowing. Absolutely. And I see you nodding here. Yeah. Um, all right, I, I wanna get um, to uh, kind of the potential pins that could pop this bubble, black swans that could upend the apple cart, whatever analogies we wanna mishmash okay. together here. Um, before I do though, I just wanna go back to buybacks for a second, because um, that's it's something that's very important. And I'm not sure that, that all the viewers watching this video appreciate what a, a factor buybacks have been in supporting uh, stock valuations. Yeah. Uh, or stock asset, uh, stock prices. <laughs> um, and uh, maybe if you could just give kind of two seconds on, you know, your estimation on how much of an impact they've had um, on supporting prices. And, and also, they used to be illegal. <laughs> uh, and, then, and then they, they I think back in the 90s, were, were allowed to become legal again. And of course, now it's, it's a huge amount of the volume and purchasing of, of many companies. Um, how are they not sanctioned manipulation of prices? Well, at a minimum, you'd think that they would heavily scrutinize companies that announce buybacks um, while insiders are selling. Like that, that obviously yeah, should no be brand. something that's right. Um, and yet you see this, the timing is often very uh, coincidental, shall we say. So it just seems like a lot of companies grease the exits for their insiders with the with these buybacks but um i getting into the question of trying to quantify the impact um i saw an analysis just this week that uh, ascribed 40 percent of the move in the s p over the last decade to share buybacks and only 31 percent to earnings and then there was multiple expansion and um other that contributed to the rest but 40% so the, that was the largest contributor by far um, to the increase in the S&P over the last decade, according to this analysis. And I would just say, again, I really nerd that I am. I spend a lot of time in the GDP profits figures and you know they've shown really pathetic growth over a period during which the S&P earnings numbers have been resplendent. Um, and it does make sense, you know, you're first off, while we worship at the altar of the S&P earnings, uh, it's 500 companies, you know, in, in the United States, uh, publicly listed companies, I mean, there are thousands um, of which these 500 are just the largest, um, and they're the ones with the economies of scale, and they're the ones who can, you know, find all these ways to uh, inflate their earnings and, and whatnot. The basic businesses out there aren't able to do these tricks and that's reflected in the the government data that actually quantifies these on a dollar for dollar basis rather than looking at them on on per share metrics um but i would just say you know as uninspiring as the economic growth was leading up before we had the whole covid pandemic um the trend in corporate profits as measured by the governments was every bit as uninspiring um, and you wouldn't have known that looking at the S&P earnings numbers, which 
again, you know, that's it. all Wall Street looks at. So they see it as a justification for pushing asset prices up to these ridiculous levels, um, even though they should know better, you know, they should be adjusting for the buybacks to get a better picture as to what's really happening um, in the businesses. But Wow. Yeah, it, it is largely it's largely accounting gimmickry, right? I mean, there are some benefits where you're you're retiring stock that might be paying a dividend, right? And if you're borrowing to do it at next to zero, you know, there's right. there's an arbitrage to be made there if you're the CFO. But in general, to your point, the vast majority of, of the effect is just accounting gimmickry and relatively simple accounting gimmickry. But yes. saying, <laughs> the market still kind of gets fooled by it. And 40% yeah. of the performance uh, driven by that versus actual earnings growth, which is just crazy. Um, wow. All right. Um, so uh, let's let's get to those black swans. Um, I think we've already mentioned a, a number of them, but um, it sounds like you think that there is going to be a material correction ahead mm -hmm. at some point. Um, I'm not going to ask you to pick a timing, but maybe you could give us, um, yeah, you know, I feel like it's going to happen within the next, within the next two years, not necessarily saying two years, but you know, is it, is it, is it something that could happen, you know, near enough to matter, or we don't need to worry about it for a while. I'll, I'll, I'll just ask you to pick one, one yeah. side there. Um, and then also what's your top, oh, second general magnitude. Okay. You know, are we right. going to brush it off as a flesh wound, you know, 10, 15%? Okay. Uh, or could it be like a Jeremy Grantham, 50%? Could it be like a David Hunter, 80% uh, mm -hmm. fall? Uh, and then last, if you could go through what, you know, maybe your top three or four favorite candidates for okay. what could trigger that. Yeah. Well, um, you know, I uh, would like to imagine, I hate to say that because like isn't the word, but I imagine that. Um, given what you mentioned earlier about all the uncertainties that we have right now, um, that the likelihood that this happens sooner rather than later is pretty great. I mean, I, I, if it's still two years from now, um, we won't be having this conversation because I'll be committed in some kind of insane asylum <laughs> somewhere. You'll right. have to come visit me in my straight jacket. There. I might be in the padded cell next to you. So. <laughs> okay. Um, so that for me it seems like here we've got the fed about to taper under the lie that taper isn't tightening you know against a backdrop of unprecedented fiscal um funding needs uh and they're planning to kind of exit gracefully from their responsibility of of picking up all that slack i think that's one major risk and then of course you've got what's happening you know on the fiscal side in terms of whether this bill gets passed or not, um, it is going to include a lot of tax increases that are probably not going to be stimulative to growth in the economy, in my opinion. We can talk about that more later. Um, and then, of course, the geopolitical uncertainties are myriad. Um, and then we've got energy prices and all of that. And, you know, to the extent we're going woke and we refuse to uh, produce any of our own oil, we are demanding everyone else around the world do it. Um, that's probably not going to reduce the, um, you know, the depressing effect of higher energy prices anytime soon. So, again, I think that uh, I would anticipate that we would see a meaningful correction, certainly within the next year, um, if not sooner than that. Um, and as to magnitude, I guess, you know, I fall between uh, Grantham and Hunter in terms of if you just look at 
that math that I laid out at the very beginning, um, you're talking about a correction somewhere around 60, 65%, I think, to get to fair value. Now, of course, you never really get there and just sit there neatly and, and then go back up. So there is a chance that we overshoot, but then there's also a chance that we don't get anywhere close to that before the powers that be come rushing in with the fire hoses again. So, you know, I, my hunch would be that um, unless we have like an October 19th where things collapse in such short order that they don't have time to come in, um, odds are that they'll come in and try to provide support under the market long before we get too, too uh, deep underwater. But as for catalysts, um, there are a lot. My all-time favorite though, and this is maybe uh, sort of tinfoil hat type of stuff, but I really think China is going to be the catalyst for this uh, correction or uh, bear market. And I think that because I think that like COVID, um, what's happening with China's credit, the property sector and trying to deleverage the property sector um, and the whole Evergrande situation um, started out as an undesirable situation for them. It puts them at great risk economically. Um, but they quickly have identified that this could be a real opportunity. This is my sort of sinister thinking about it is that um, the calculus for China may be, yeah, it's going to hurt our economy, but Chairman Xi isn't up for election anytime soon. He's there for life. And his number one goal is to challenge US hegemony and establish China as a global economic superpower. And I think in the West, we are so cavalier and kind of flicking that off like, yeah, whatever, you know, China could never take ever rival the United States, much less usurp our role as the world's reserve currency and the number one superpower. And I think that is dangerously naive um, because again, he can take hits that our politicians have no ability or willingness to take. Um, and if it means that they're gonna deflate their property bubble and deleverage the system, which by the way, is exactly what the tightening measures they imposed were intended to do. So, you know, now that they're taking effect, everyone gets all hysterical about how, oh my gosh, look, they're deflating, you know, this bubble is bursting. Exactly. That's what they were trying to achieve. No bubble deflates in smooth, perfect, controlled fashion. And they knew that. Um, and I think people are overly cavalier as they watch what's happening with Evergrande, then hit, you know, then there's Fantasia and there's, and there's modern land and we're going the parade of defaults. And the assumption here seems to be, all right, well, when it gets really bad, they're going to come in and start bailing this out and print money and do whatever it takes. Um, meanwhile, you know, the yuan has strengthened fa faster and farther than it has in any times since they went on a managed float back in 2005. So they're, it's a new approach. They no longer want to debase their currency to maintain export advantage to the rest of the world. They are really focused on getting their consumer economy going, handing their consumers purchasing power, rivaling the US, uh, establishing the yuan as a hard money currency while we're at 
printing money hand over fist. Um, and I think that could be the real surprise. If, if they let their bubble burst, eventually it's going to filter out their borders and all over the world and we'll have a credit meltdown globally. Um, and we are not in a position to handle that. They are, we're not. So I think that's, that's my favorite. I mean, again, I use the word favorite. It's in a ghoulish kind of way, but that's my top um, black swan uh, event because I just don't think anyone's really focused on that. Wow, well, well fascinating. <laughs> and, and you just showed that you really thought it all through. So it sounds like uh, you think that she could, could basically um, set off the credit bomb um, and his bet is, look, we're all going to get, right. you know, peppered with shrapnel from this, but I'm betting that I can get up and dust myself off from that and recover much faster than these kind of bloated sclerotic, you know, right. old Western powers that, you know, still dream it's their glory days, but don't realize that, that they're ending. And I think he also is betting correctly, I imagine that the response by Western central banks will be to immediately go back to doing what they've been doing all along, which is just printing money, but they'll do it in even more splendiferous fashion, which when it comes to taking over the dollar as the reserve currency plays right into their hand. You know, let's just get this QE on steroids globally and completely destroy the value of the dollar or the Euro the pound, you know, and then the wand starts to look like a viable alternative. Right, right. And and first off, you share that prediction, right? You, you Yeah, I, <laughs> I said that. Yes, I'm I'm actually owning it, although it sounds like something I should be standing on the sidewalk with a sandwich board, you know, it's China's going to deflate our bubble, but I really think it's it's a possibility. Right. Well, I mean, you and, and many others that I've interviewed recently, you know, they they seem to be relatively uniform in saying, look, when the next market correction hits, that is going to be the response from the central banks. Um, mm -hmm. uh, or even, you know, certainly if, if, if there's a credit market freeze up, you know, absolutely, they're, they're going to go back to the playbook that seems like the only playbook that they know. Yeah. Right? Um, so you, you I just want to go back to a term you mentioned a few minutes ago, you said that um, you see China as trying to position the one as a, as a, um, like you said, hard asset backed yeah. currency. Yeah. Can you just dig into that a little bit more? So it, 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 I just want to be clear, you don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like you're thinking they are positioning the one to actually be backed by something, not just a fiat currency. And if so, what do you see it being backed by? Well, I guess, um, you know, it's, it's impossible to, uh, prove, but, Sure. You're, just, you're, been, you're just prognosticating here. We, yeah, I think that they have been stockpiling gold, but we won't know because they're certainly not going to run out and advertise that. And they're famously coy about not reporting sales for years on end. I mean, I think that they um, reported sales in 2017 that they had made five years. I mean, sorry, purchases um, in 2017 that they had made five years earlier. So they're they're not revealing they're not putting their cards on the table and um, probably shrewdly so. Um, but I think that, um, you know, they clearly, what they see, I think, is that they're gonna need to have it backed by something. And obviously they're making huge strides on establishing a digital currency. Um, but I think that um, it's really um, the stockpiling of gold that, that strikes me as most interesting. Uh, but in general, 
even if they didn't back it with anything, they still on a relative basis are going to be in a position to look like the most responsible, um, you know, currency out there as the rest of the world is printing like crazy. So I, I think that, uh, you know, I've tried to figure out when this bubble bursts, what will the monetary response here in the US be? You know, we've obviously seen unprecedented stimulus after COVID, um, and we saw a huge stimulus right after the housing bubble burst. Um, what could we expect if and when this market actually does revert to some semblance of fair value? And to come to some idea, uh, I just looked at that that pension funding situation, which you know is another one of my favorite nerdy topics, um, and it's improved enormously, not surprisingly, during this huge boom we've seen in, in financial assets, but it's still five and a half trillion dollars. So there's still five and a half trillion underwater. That's public and private pensions combined. That's the entire US pension system. Right, right. When, um, when everything is priced to fantasy, it's still got a hole that big. Exactly. At the all time peak in financial assets. Um, and they've only done that well because they're buying, you know, the crappiest, sorry, the junkiest of junk that they can stretching everywhere they can to try to make those 8% return assumptions in a 1% risk-free world. Um, so when you go back and you look at what was the monetary response after the dot-com bubble burst and the housing bubble burst to the, the, huge destruction to pensions because obviously you know bailing out the banks isn't very popular but you got to bail out people who worked hard and you know who were promised pensions um especially in the government sector um and what you saw is that after those two bubbles um the budget shortfall the deficit for pensions doubled on average so if we're at five and a half trillion now figure we go to 11 trillion funding deficit um that's you know tack that onto the fed's balance sheet i guess i don't know if the government has to make everyone whole and then the fed has to monetize that again i can just see z doing that math over in china saying yeah let's let's burst this uh asset bubble and and have the fed run in and and uh make pensions whole with the help of the government and we'll be, you know, uh, all set on our path to uh, rivaling the dollar as the reserve currency. Right. Well, um, time will tell. It'll be very interesting. <laughs> and no matter what happens along the way, Stephanie, we're going to watch you here, uh, you know, chronicling it for us as it, as it happens. Um, gosh, you know, there's, there's so many questions I'm not going to get a chance to get to. Um, I did want to ask you about uh, the energy situation. Um, you know, both in terms of the spiking prices and the shortages and the increased geopolitical competition for, you know, a lot of these key um, fuels. Um, you know, right now, China and Europe are in a massive bidding war over coal. Mm. Um, and energy is, is so critical because, you know, if you, don't, if you don't have enough energy, you can't power your economy, right? Nothing right. happens with it. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, and then I wanted to ask you too about real estate, which we're just not going to have time for. Um, uh, but, you know, we're, we're seeing somewhat like the stock market, you know, we're seeing, uh, housing prices at all time highs. 
um, affordability, um, you know, plummeting. Um, mm-hmm. And we're seeing investors come in and, and increasingly snapping up inventory, um, really raising the question, hey, is, is, is the average U.S. homeowner getting priced out of the market here? Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, those are long discussions in and of themselves. Um, if you have anything brief to say about them, please do. But, but let's now switch to um, but I think a lot of our viewers are watching or asking, which is, hey, if this is what Stephanie's thinking about the future, right? Yeah. Lots of risks, um, potential for interest rates to rise in the near term. Maybe that's the trigger. Maybe it's, you know, China, maybe it's whatever. But we get this, let's say Stephanie's 60 plus percent correction in the markets. Um, what asset classes look favorable to you in this current environment? And also, which asset classes would you stay away from, given your macro outlook? Well, I'll just tell you how I'm personally positioned. We hope you've been enjoying this discussion with macroeconomic researcher Stephanie Pomboy. The interview continues over in part two, where Stephanie shares how her own personal portfolio is being positioned for the market future she predicts ahead. To watch part two, just click on the link provided in the description to this video below or go to youtube.com slash Wealthion. But before you go, please don't forget to support this channel by hitting the like button and then clicking the subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it if you haven't already. It only takes a second and it really does help us reach a lot more users. And if you'd appreciate a free, no-strings-attached portfolio review by a financial advisor who can help manage your portfolio with the risks and opportunities that Stephanie has highlighted here, just go to Wealthion.com and we'll set one up for you. Okay, I'll see you over at part two of our video interview with Stephanie Pomboy.